The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. All right, Psalm 136. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever and slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly state, for his mercy endures forever and rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. There's 26 uh, lines in that particular psalm, and the number 26 spells out the name of God in Hebrew, yod Hey vav Hey Yehovah. And that's who the song is dedicated to, the Lord. So it's kind of an interesting little thing going on in that psalm. Okay, we're in Judges 5. It's verses 1 through 5. This is entitled, The Song of Deborah. This is the first of four parts. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. The song of Deborah holds a special place in Scripture. 
Though Miriam picked up her short refrain at the time of the giving of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, her words were merely a repeat of what Moses had already said. Here's what it says in Exodus 15, 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Miriam, this is from Exodus 15 later, this is Miriam's song. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took her timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So she just took what Moses had already said. As such, this is really the first song given through a woman in the Bible, meaning the song of Deborah. Two other similar enunciations are made by women, Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 and Mary in Luke 1. However, what Hannah says is specifically noted as a prayer, not a song. The words of Mary follow the same style as Hannah's. Therefore, though often called the song of Hannah or the song of Mary, they are not really comparable to what is recorded here in Judges 5. This makes the song of Deborah unique in all of Scripture. It is the only true song coming from a woman. Many of the Psalms are specifically called songs, but they are penned by men. As for the contents of this song, it really is a masterpiece of literature. Noted scholars give detailed thoughts on its structure, wording, and so on. But the words are, at times, extremely complicated. They take care and thought to be properly rendered. For example, Adam Clark says the following concerning them. There are many difficulties in this very sublime song, and learned men have toiled much to remove them. That there are several gross mistakes in our version, meaning the King James Version, will be instantly acknowledged by all who can critically examine the original. I have examined the original and compared it word for word with the King James Version. The word several is a gracious note from Adam Clark. They did a rather sloppy job in their rendering of what is so beautifully recorded in the original. Our text verse comes from Psalm 28. It is verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I will praise him. The words of this verse from Psalm 28 almost mirror what has taken place in Judges 4. Deborah was confident in the Lord. She spoke her words to Barak, who was a tad reticent to accept what she said. He challenged her to accompany him as a condition of his acceptance. She agreed because she was confident in the Lord. And in the Lord, she was helped. Because of this, the words of the song of Deborah came forth from her with rejoicing as she praised the Lord. Of course, this has all been done under the inspiration from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has provided us not merely with a past story to commemorate, but hints of future events to anticipate. This will be seen as we wind through the song. Concerning the structural contents of the song, though long, the John Lang commentary gives a fair and well-presented sense of what we will be looking at in the coming verses. He says, The form of the song, as of the old Hebrew poetry generally, is that of free rhythm. The song is a poetical stream, everywhere poetical and yet untrammeled by any artistic division in the strophes. 
Such a division, it is true, is not altogether wanting, but it has never made a rule. Consequently, efforts to force it systematically on the poem, while only traces of it show themselves, are all in vain. There's no want of finish. Introduction and conclusion are well-defined, but the pauses subordinate themselves to the thoughts, and these unfold themselves free as the waves. The peculiar character of the song consists in the boldness of its imagery and the force of its unusual language. I will say that's true. I always check, is this the first time a word is used in Scripture or the only time a word is used in Scripture? And there are many, many times that this is the case. It appropriates in a natural manner all those forms which genuine poetry does not seek but produce, but it appropriates them all with a freedom which endures none as a rule, yet without, like the natural stream, violating harmony. The song, then, has strophes, but they are not of equal measure. It moves along in parallelisms, but with variations corresponding to the movement of the thought. The most interesting feature to be noticed is the alliteration which appears in the highest development and delicacy, as elsewhere only in the Old Norse poems, but also with considerable freedom from restraint. It is important to notice this because it testifies more than any division into strophes that may exist to the nature of the popular song and its lyrical use. The divisions which the poem certainly shows are determined only by its own course of thought. They are the praise of God as an introduction, which is Judges 5, 2 through 5. The delineation of the emergency, Judges 5, 6 through 8. The call to praise that the evil no longer exists, that's Judges 5, 9 through 11. Delineation of the victory and the victors, that's Judges 5, 12 through 23. And the fate of the enemy, Judges 5, 24 through 31. That is the John Lang commentary. It is hoped that the next few sermons will be a blessing to you. The content in its own way excited me unlike anything since the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Searching out the mind of God as it is displayed in poetry is a particular and unparalleled delight. The Song of Deborah is an amazing and beautiful part of God's superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, I will sing to the Lord. It's verses 1 through 3. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, Vatashar devora u Barak ben Avinom payom hahu lemor. And sang Deborah and Barak, son Abinoam, in the day, the it, saying. These words introduce the song of Deborah. It is the fourth recorded song in Scripture. The first was the song of Moses in Exodus 15.1. That was accompanied by the refrain of Miriam in Exodus 15.21. After that came the song of the well, introduced in Numbers 21.17. That was followed by the song of Moses, introduced in Deuteronomy 31, but which is recorded in Deuteronomy 32. Now comes this song, which is sung by Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam. Of it, Albert Barnes says that for poetic spirit and lyric fire is not surpassed by any of the sacred songs in the Bible. As Deborah was a prophetess, and as the words of several verses are in the first person singular, such as in verse 5-3, 
it is likely that the song was written solely by Deborah as she was inspired. The verb here translated as sang is also feminine. Thus, it can be assumed that the words were received and penned by her, but the singing would be as a duet. It could be that at later times it was sung by groups of females and males as they remembered the time when it was originally sung by these two. As for the words on that day, this does not have to mean a particular day or the day of the event. It is a time marker that can signify at that time. The victory is complete. And at that time, or maybe even on that same day, while the events of the battle were still fresh on their minds, the song was penned and it was sung by Deborah and Barak. With these things considered, we now enter into the substance of the poem, beginning with verse 2. When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Bifroa praot be Yisrael be hitnadev am barachu Yehovah. Each clause will be independently explained. In freeing freedmen in Israel, one can see the alliteration in the words, which I have replicated in the translation. Bifroa praot, in freeing freedmen. The words are difficult. The first word is para. It signifies to let go, coming from a primitive root signifying to loosen. The sense here is seen in Proverbs 29, verse 18. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, para, but happy is he who keeps the law. Next, there is a rare word, pera, which is the same as pera, hair, or locks. It is found only here and in Deuteronomy 32, verse 42. It is uncertain what it actually means. However, Robert Young seems to have accurately defined it as freedmen. Just as hair is free and becomes unkempt, so are these freed men. Remember what has occurred, Judges 4. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harushet Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Instead of being bound and oppressed by the enemy, they are now unkempt and free. Literally, then, it reads, in loosening freedmen. However, to maintain the alliteration and because of the explanation that accompanies the translation, in freeing freedmen, it sweetly matches the style of the Hebrew. Finally, these things were done in Israel. The people were bound because the Lord had sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. But now the time of punishment is over and the people of Israel have been freed, moving from being bondsmen to freedmen. Next, in volunteering people. The word is nadav. It means to incite or impel. Exodus 35 says, Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, nadav, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. And then a little further down in the same chapter, the children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing, nadav, to bring material for all kinds of work, which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. You can see the idea of being incited or impelled to do something. Also, the verb nadav is reflexive. 
meaning the direct object is the same as the subject. The people were impelled from within, and so they acted. Therefore, willingly offered themselves correctly identifies their condition. But in one word, volunteering is the closest match. This is also accompanied by a description of who is acting. People, meaning the freed people of Israel of the previous clause. This was reflected in the words of verse 410 that said, And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command. From Deborah's words, it shows that the people voluntarily came together and willingly followed Barak. In this occurrence, Deborah goes ballistic. Bless Jehovah. I say she goes ballistic because you can almost see her throw out her arms like two missiles to the sky in elation concerning what has occurred. All she can do is rejoice with exhilaration. The Lord was the source of the inspiration to call for Barak. He had responded according to the word of the Lord, and the people were summoned to battle, and they voluntarily went when called. With that, the victory was realized. The people had trusted Barak, who had, in turn, trusted the words of Deborah that had come from the Lord. Therefore, the credit is to the Lord who initiated, led, and brought about the victory. Bless Jehovah. Consider the thought now that the explanation has been provided. It is a complimentary A-B pattern followed by a note of praise. A. In freeing freedmen in Israel, B, in volunteering people, bless Jehovah. The Lord, through the spirit of prophecy, freed the now free men. The people responded accordingly. The Lord is to be blessed. With that, Deborah continues her words. Verse 3, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Shimu melachim ha'azinu roznim anochi le'yehovah anochi ashira azamar le'yehovah elohe Yisrael. Here, kings, give ear, rulers. There's nothing difficult or unusual about the first two words. Deborah calls for the kings to hear what she will proclaim. It is a proclamation that calls for the utmost attention on their part. The next word, ha'azinu, is a verb that comes from a primitive root, probably meaning to expand. Thus, it signifies to broaden the ear. One can think of turning the head and stretching the muscles around the ear to open the canal, or maybe to even put one's hand by the ear to enable it to collect more sound. Thus, give ear. She is magnifying the exhortation just given. Hear and give ear. That is followed by a new word to scripture, razan. That comes from a primitive root, probably meaning to be weighty. Thus, one can think of that which is judicious or commanding. As such, it refers to a ruler, being plural, give ear rulers. Deborah is calling for such important people as kings and rulers to pay careful and attentive heed to what she has to say. With that, she continues with emphatic and carefully chosen words that direct those rulers to the source of what she will then explain. I, to Jehovah, I sing, make melody, to Jehovah, God Israel. In Hebrew, one can make a statement to be first person through how the verb is spoken. For example, in Psalm 9-2, it says, Azamra Shimcha Elion, I sing to your name, Most High. 
The verb zamar itself carries the first person construct, azamara. In such a structure, the I is implied in the verb. For clarity, translators will often explicitly state I, just as in the above example. However, if it is already understood, it is more often than not ignored, lest the translation get bogged down with too many I's. We can do the same thing in English, even though the verbs do not carry such a construct. If the listener gets the context, we can lazily accomplish this, like my marvelous friend Cornpone. This is an example from him. He says, Ma, going to the store, going to get some chitlins, seeing if you want something too. To add emphasis in Hebrew, one can openly proclaim I. He doesn't do it in his sentence talking about cornpone, but we get the message even though it's not there. This is what Deborah does here. I, saying it all by itself, to Yehovah I sing, first person verb. It doesn't really say I, but it's implied in the verb itself. So I, to Yehovah I sing. I make melody, another first person verb, to Yehovah. Thus the words are exceedingly emphatic. Some translations even add an emphatic marker, such as the New King James Version did. I, even I, will sing. This highlights the thought, but it is unnecessary if the context is understood. Further, in this clause, the verbs are imperfect. Thus, many translations say, I will sing. But what is probably even more the meaning, because it is a song that is being sung at the time, one should think, I am singing. Young says, I do sing, something that can be inferred in the simple words, I sing. I tried to keep this as simple as possible when I translated it. As for the verbs, the first is the same word stated in verse 1, sure, to sing. The second word, zamar, is introduced here. It is most frequently seen in the Psalms, and it is much more complicated. It comes from a primitive root and is identified with the noun zamar which means to trim or prune, as in a vine. These two words probably meet in the thought of how it is translated by the New King James Version in Psalm 33. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody, zamar, to him with an instrument of ten strings. Now think of you're out on a, you know, in a vineyard, and you're cutting, you're going clip, 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 okay? And this word is similar in idea. The idea is that one strikes the vine with a sort of clipping motion. So the hand also plays, striking the chords of the instrument as the fingers move. So you can see why it's translated the way it is. It can be assumed then that when the Psalms speak elsewhere of singing praises to the Lord while using this word, it would normally be inclusive of playing instruments. Lastly, Deborah is doing these things, Le Yehovah Elohei Yisrael, to Yehovah God, Israel. In other words, her instruction to the kings and rulers is found in what she has sung to God. Therefore, if wise, they should acknowledge him as well. With the explanation for the words provided, let us now return to the entire verse. Shimu melachim ha'azinu roznim anochi le'yehovah, anochi ashera azamer le'yehovah Elohe Yisrael. It is an A-A-B pattern. A, hear kings. A, give ear rulers. B, I, to Jehovah, I sing, make melody. To Jehovah, God Israel. Deborah has received the prophetic words from the Lord. 
She has seen them realized in the victory of Israel over the foe. As such, she wants the kings and rulers to pay heed. She cannot contain herself, but must vocalize what has transpired, returning her thoughts to Jehovah, the God of Israel. The words carry a similar calling forth as the words that are found in Psalm 2, where it says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You can see how similar the thoughts are in both of those. With that, her singing and making melody to Jehovah next begins. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes of the isles be glad. Let the nations raise a resounding voice. The Lord reigns. Let none be sad. He has triumphed victoriously. The battle is won by his glorious right hand. Let us sing his praises continuously. The Lord alone, his achievements are grand. How great you are, O God, our King. You lead the procession for your redeemed. To you alone our hearts do sing. Victory in battle, your sword has gleamed. Our second thought today, before the Lord God of Israel. It's verses four and five. Verse four, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water. Yehovah be'tzetcha miseir be'tzadcha misteh, Edom eretz ra'asha gam shemaim, natafu gam avim, natafu maim. Yehovah, in your going out from Seir. The words hearken back to Moses' words in the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Deborah is metaphorically considering the spiritual birth of Israel as a people, just as Moses did. Seir is the land where Esau, Jacob's older brother, settled. The location is that which surrounds Mount Seir, a mountain with low bushes on it, which gives it a hairy appearance. Hence, it is called Seir, or hairy. Hair in the Bible signifies an awareness of things, especially in relation to sin. One can think of Christ, Jehovah incarnate. He came in the likeness of sinful man, even though he bore no sin. This is seen, for example, in Romans 8. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Remember that Deborah was an Israelite who lived under the law, but typologically she anticipates the New Testament. Thus her words speak metaphorically of the Lord, but they also anticipate the Lord incarnate, our Lord Jesus. In your march from field Edom, the word translated as march is from a primitive root signifying to pace. Thus, it is to step regularly. In a field, it would be a march. The sade or field is typical of the world. As Jesus says in his parable in Matthew 13, 38, the field is the world. Edom is synonymous with Seir. That is seen in Genesis 32, where it says, And Jacob sendeth messengers before him unto Esau his brother, towards the land of Seir, the field of Edom. However, Edom is also the name of Esau. That is found in Genesis 36. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau 
is Edom. Esau is the made man, his name coming from Asa, to make. He was born covered in hair, and thus he was called Esau because of this particular trait. It was as if he was born a fully developed man. We can think of Adam, who was created and fully developed when he was made. Edom is picturing Adam. Edom comes from Adom, red, which then comes from Adam, to be red. It is the same root as the name of Adam, the man who was formed by the Lord, as it says in Genesis 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Thus, this parallel clause again points back to Israel's inception, but also forward to the coming of Christ Jesus, the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That is further explained in Hebrews 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Isn't it wonderful? Everything is fitting together in what Deborah is telling us, pointing to Christ. In the giving of the law and in the coming of Christ to fulfill the law and usher in a new covenant, the earth quaked. It is a new word, ra'ash, coming from a primitive root, meaning to undulate. Thus, it means to tremble, quake, shake, and so on. In this case, I translate it as quake. It is as if the Lord is marching. With each step, the earth quakes. That's what you get the idea of. It is reminiscent of what occurred at Christ's death when the new covenant was ushered in. It says in Matthew 27, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked. Then the rocks were split. Then the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The words of Deborah look back in time and also prophetically forward. Also, heavens dropped. Another new word is uttered, nataf. It is from a primitive root meaning to ooze. Thus, it signifies to gradually distill, and then, by implication, to fall in drops. Figuratively, it is used to indicate prophesying, such as in words distilling and dropping forth. The object of what is dropped is withheld until the next clause, even if it is implied in the thought now. This literary tool, quite common in spoken Hebrew, elicits excitement in the mind, causing it to focus on the next words more closely. Also, scuds dropped water. The word is av. It has only been seen once so far in Exodus 19, verse 9. There it said, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, the av, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. It comes from uv, to be cloud. Thus, it properly means an envelope. For example, darkness. It isn't merely a cloud, but one which is thick. Here, however, it is plural. For a single word to define the thought, I have provided the word scuds. Scud bomb clouds or scuds are formed as the warmer and often moister updraft of a thunderstorm lifts the relatively warm air near the surface. The moisture condenses as the air ascends. It is then pushed outward from the storm. Scuds are commonly found on the leading edge of a storm front. 
They can extend even to the ground, having the appearance of a tornado, but they do not have the rotation associated with a tornado. Thus, they can be considered a beclouding cloud. It is this thick mass that is then said to drop water. Thus, these words can be equated to the effects of Christ's work upon his people. Though it was tongues of fire that alighted upon the people in Acts 2, those who received the Spirit were specifically said to have prophesied. That's in Acts 2.17, Acts 2.18, and Acts 19.6. Water is elsewhere equated to words, such as in Proverbs 18.4, Amos 8.11, and Ephesians 5.26. In the last example, Paul says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The words of Deborah reflect on the past and typologically anticipate events yet future. Understanding this, the verse can now be re-examined. Yehovah be'tzedcha miseir be'tzadcha mistei edom eretz ra'asha gam shemaim natafu gam avim natfu maim. It is an A-A-B-C-C pattern. Yehovah. In your going out from Seir, that's A, and then A again, in your march from field Edom, B, earthquaked, and then C, also heavens dropped water, C, also scuds dropped water. Deborah is looking back to the giving of the law and the establishment of the Mosaic covenant, which gave birth to Israel in bondage to the law. That's Galatians 4.24. However, her words anticipate the coming of Christ and the freedom of God's grace, which is found in Galatians 4.31 at the introduction of the new covenant. Continuing, Deborah next says, verse 5, the mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. Harim naslu mipne Yehovah ze Sinai mipne Yehovah Elohei Yisrael. Mountains streamed from faces, meaning before Yehovah. The word nazal, to stream, was introduced in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. It is seen in poetic passages when referring to flowing water. It is also used to describe the wafting of incense as it streams through the air in Solomon's Song of Songs. The unstated implication is that what the mountains streamed forth was water. As always, a mountain, a har, is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Here it is plural, harim, mountains. The picture being given is described by Jesus in John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of water will flow from within him. Jesus is speaking of individuals there, but people are associated with people groups none of whom are excluded from what God is doing in Christ. Thus, the mountain streaming can be seen in the idea of the inclusion of every nation on earth. Saying that this is from faces Jehovah is a clear and unambiguous foreshadowing of the incarnation and thus the deity of Jesus Christ. He is Jehovah incarnate. With that, Deborah again uses parallelism to re-express her words. She says, this Sinai from faces, meaning before, Jehovah, God Israel. Sinai, bush of the Lord, is where the Lord first called Moses. It is where the Mosaic law was later given. In Exodus 3, verse 2, it noted that the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. 
The symbolism of the fire is then seen in the coming of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist first spoke of it in Matthew 3.11 concerning the baptism of those who had come to Christ through the new covenant. That was realized in a visible manifestation when the tongues of fire came upon the believers at Pentecost in Acts 2.3. The symbolism to be understood is that believers are endowed with the baptism of fire and yet they are not consumed. Instead, waters pour forth from them. The words form a parallel to the previous clause, but they help tie together what is going on between the giving of the old covenant and the new. This can be more clearly seen in revisiting now the entire verse. Harim Naslu Mipne Yehovah Zesinai Mipne Yehovah Elohe Yisrael. It is an AA pattern. Mountains stream from faces Yehovah. This Sinai from faces Yehovah, God Israel. The mountains here probably speak of the clearly discernible peaks of Mount Sinai. Thus, both clauses refer to the same mountain, but in a different style. With the initiation of the covenant, which gave birth to the people group, Deborah will next bring the narrative to the events that have just transpired as recorded in chapter 4 and led to the song that she is now singing to the Lord in praise. It is such a marvelous set of verses to consider. Each of the four poetic verses have shown unmistakable hints of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Deborah typologically anticipates the New Testament, we should not be surprised by this. God is telling his story in scripture. He is using historical events to tell it and then have it retold through more historical events that transpire later. He also uses a plethora of literary tools to do so. Thus, we can search out what is being said, contemplate it from a literal historical perspective that can be verified through archaeology and other historical writings, and then revel in how what has been said once again unfolds in a way that leaves us with no doubt that the past events were pointing to the future. As it says in Ecclesiastes 3, that which has been already and that which is to be hath already been, and God seeketh again that which has passed away. He does these things so that we will seek him out, seek out his mind, seek out his heart, seek out his love, seek out what he is conveying within the stream of time as history unfolds and so much more. And what we will find is that he is telling us the story of Jesus coming, his work, and how that pertains to us. It is the message of salvation that the world so desperately needs to hear. God has done it. Let us give ear and hear his words. Isn't it wonderful? I don't know if you like the poetry or not, but I'm so excited just reading it again. The day I typed this, I was literally bursting with joy at what God has put in this word. The way the words are structured, the way that the words are given alliteration, the way that they do certain things in the Hebrew. And it's just such a treat to see. So I hope you enjoyed that. There's three more if you didn't, so uh, get out your pillow. But if you did, then you'll not like the next three sermons as well. They all anticipate the coming of Jesus. And they're all in this literary form of poetry that God has given. Now, if you want to go through this in marked detail, I'm talking about this type of poetry. Start with the Psalms, Psalm 1, learn Hebrew, and go through every single Psalm, 150 of them in Hebrew, and you're going to get just what you're getting today. I, it is absolutely marvelous how it is structured. And that's why some people spend their entire lives studying the Psalms, their entire lives, and they still haven't plumbed the depths of it. It is amazing what is found in the Psalms. But 
the point of everything we've seen today and everything we've seen in the past and everything we're going to see in every sermon until the end of my life at least is Jesus. That's the point of what we're seeing. Again and again, we see hints and types of what Jesus came to do and what it means for us as people in the world. And so I would hope that you would consider that. I would hope that you would think on that. And if you've never made a commitment to Jesus, I would hope that you would do so. Because time is short. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. And anything could happen. So I would just ask you to consider the simple gospel that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose again. This is what God, all the entire book, this giant book, comes down to that thought. God gave his son for the world to save them from their sins. It's all summed up in the simple gospel of Jesus. Everything God is telling us. We're going to get into Judges chapter 6, and we're going to see so much of the law being spoken against and grace being granted. It, it, it goes on and on. Every time we see these types, it always comes back to law versus grace. Are you going to try to work your way into God's favor, or are you going to trust that God has already done it for you, that he has made the move? I would hope that you would accept the grace. I'm so sorry for people that are stuck under law observance after hearing about the message of Jesus or never hearing it properly at all. That's quite a problem in the world is they're just told from the beginning that, you know, Jesus came to die for your sins, but you still need to earn your way to heaven. That's not grace. That has nothing to do with grace at all. That is contrary to it. It is another gospel, which is no gospel, according to Paul. Go read Galatians chapter 1 and cling to those words. There is one gospel. There is one way of reconciliation. There is one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 49. It's verses 1 through 3. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. Kind of sums up our sermon today. Next week is Judges 5. It's verses 6 through 12. Oorah! Can't wait to preach it to you. It's entitled The Song of Deborah. Part 2. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 14th Judges sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges the people according to their deeds. So follow him and live for him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a question for you today. This is not my question. Don and Jody wanted me to make it simple, so they gave me simple Bible questions, a whole book of them, and said, pick these every week. So I will do that sometimes, but here's my question. Not my question. Not mine. What was Solomon's other given name? Right there at the beginning of his life, the Lord also called him, I'll pronounce it the English way, Jedida. Sorry, nobody guesses. This is cool, too. This is the Pagani Zonda R. This is one fast car. You could have gotten that today, and maybe you'll get it next week. Solomon's other given name is Jadida. Okay, I got a very short poem for you today, and I'm not putting it in poem form. I'm reading it exactly as I, Charlie Garrett, translated it, so you can hear those five verses. This is the Song of Deborah, part one. And sang Deborah and Barak, son Abinoam, in the day, the it sang in freeing freedmen in Israel, in volunteering people, bless Jehovah. 
Hear, kings, give ear, rulers. I, to Jehovah, I sing. I make melody to Jehovah, God, Israel. Jehovah, in your going out from Seir, in your march from Field Edom, earthquaked, also heavens dropped, also scuds dropped water. Mountains streamed from faces Jehovah, this Sinai from faces Jehovah, God, Israel. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for your wonderful word. How grateful we are for what it tells us the simple message of the coming of the Redeemer of the world to bring us back from our state of sin and to reconcile us to you forever. Thank you for the work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word that gives us such wonderful poetic insights into the very heart of what you are doing for us. It gives us historical insights into what you have done. It gives us prophetic insights into what you will do. Thank you for your word, which is an endless stream of delight and joy. Yes, Lord God, thank you for your superior word. And thank you above all for Jesus, who is the subject and point of your superior word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay.